Welcome to part two of the Jewish Diasporist Exploration of the Summer U, the European Union of Jewish Students' flagship retreat. We also discussed local and transnational Jewish grassroots organizing in various European communities. Last episode, we spoke mainly about the Summer U Week itself. Today, we focus on the democratic processes of the EUJS. We also have two more interviews. We'd like to extend our thank you to Damien, who helped us record these interviews, and therefore became the first ever guest producer of the Jewish Diasporist. Thank you to Damien, and thank you to all our listeners. Enjoy. Hi everyone, just before we were to publish this episode, Ethan, a Summer U attendee, approached us with some feedback and a small correction regarding the previous episode. So I cannot speak for every union, but what I can say is that for some unions, part of the participation fee or the travel costs were reimbursed, depending on how active you were within that community or within that union. Again, I cannot speak for all of them, but I can only speak for mine. The Dutch union, I got a small part of it reimbursed. This is something can definitely help and stimulate people from across Europe to come to some of you. We really appreciate this, and if you would like to correct any mistakes we made, or just give your thoughts, please get in touch. For now, it's best if you can email us or leave a comment on YouTube. No, let's get on with the podcast. One part that we haven't discussed yet is the whole decision-making process within the European Union of Jewish Students. It is a democratic organization, or so it says. I am going to try and give you a little bit of a explanation around how it all went down. Some disclaimers in the beginning. It is quite likely that there will be certain inaccuracies. Do bear in mind that I am trying to paint a general picture here with the limited time that we have. It is something that we can possibly explore in the future with people that are more involved in the intricacies of the organization. With EUJS, I went there in basically an observer form. I wasn't there as a participant in any of these discussions and debates, and also met several of the people, including the decision makers, on a friendly basis, which was a little bit of a different environment than at UJS, where me, Ben, and a few others went there specifically as people that wanted to engage and push through certain ideas around how UJS should organize. But nevertheless, I think that I can overcome my biases about people being nice or less nice, but everyone was very nice to me, and describe really the values and limitations of how UJS is run, because that is the thing that is necessary in every organization and I am engaging with everything here as a form of either praise or constructive criticism. So with that out of the way, what is UJS structured like? We will be making a lot of comparisons here to the British and Irish Union of Jewish Students. You have likewise certain offices that are elected and certain offices that are appointed or hired. In the case of EUJS, you have the general team with a board, which has a president, a treasurer, and seven board members. All of these positions are elected on two-year terms. Some may be co-opted during the time, and it's also something that is worth discussing whether a two-year term is better than a single-year term. On one hand, you have more time to get acquainted with the position and get your general ideas through. On the other hand, it also means that there is less accountability between these terms because less people are going to be around to remember all of them. And if you end up going to one summer you that happens to not be the one where these elections take place, then you are out of luck. Then there is the office of EUJS, and these are positions that specifically function full-time for the running of the organization. The main position is a executive director, three offices really, with some 
additional administrative roles. And there are also three ambassadors who come from different countries who are helping in the running of the union. Within UJS, you have three emissaries from the Jewish agency. Within EUJS, you have one. The two other ambassadors are actually not from Israel, as you might expect, or from the United States. Ben, would you like to have a guess? France and Belgium. Not bad guesses, however, it is Germany and Austria within the parastatal volunteering services. Is that permanent or does it rotate? I am not sure, but I think that they are permanent to the organization. These office spaces are not relevant to us for this discussion because they are not elected. And so we can discuss, first of all, how these elections took place for the board, the treasurer and the board members, and also a little bit about the policy area of it. But first of the elections, the presidency was actually very simple. There were two candidates for the president. One was the incumbent president and one was a board member, Avital and Emma. Avital withdrew before the election, meaning that the election was uncontested. And so there wasn't really a debate before it took place. There was just a Q&A session with the only candidate who won with, I believe, about 90% of votes cast. And UJS is organized in such a way that if you have a single candidate for a position, they need a two-thirds majority, I believe. And the same applies for the treasurer, actually. There was only one candidate for treasurer from Italy, and she won. When it comes to the board members, there were 10 candidates for seven seats. To become a candidate, you needed support from a union. And there was several parts of the campaigning process. People were able to put out posters for their candidacy around the venue complex. Some of them took the form of memes. And there was social media, as you might expect. Voting took place on the fourth day. So there were several days at some of you where you could campaign openly. There was also a hustings session for the National Council, meaning that there were questions that were given by the moderator. There were questions that certain candidates were able to ask other candidates, although they could only ask candidates that were drawn from a random lottery. So you did not have the choice of picking who you wanted to ask a question for. And there were questions from the audience that were able to take place. But you really did get an idea of how all these people expressed themselves and thought about certain ideas. Because there were so many candidates, they had to split them into two panels that took place one after the other. And they actually asked the same questions. Although I did some inquiring afterwards and the people that were in the second group did not find out what the questions were. In any case, it wasn't noticeable. The board members' elections finished off with them giving a speech at the end, and then there were 25 minutes to vote, single transferable vote that elected seven candidates out of the 10. Now, at this point, you might be asking yourself, who voted? Who was able to vote? And the answer to that question is delegates. And now who are these delegates? Delegates were representatives of the different Jewish unions who were proportionally awarded depending on the population of the Jewish community in the country, not according to how many members are in the union. Now that, of course, raises a lot of questions about how do you count how many Jewish people are in the country, but it is the system that was chosen. There was a whole matrix to give representation to different communities, although it was not 100% proportional because that would mean that the largest communities would simply trounce the smaller communities. So, for example, the United Kingdom and France had 18 votes, Russia had 12, Ukraine had 9, North Macedonia had 1. How are the delegates selected? Is there an election process within each section, or is it just they choose? The answer to that is EUJS does not mandate in which way the unions select their delegates. 
Mm. Now, that could be done very differently because not only was the question of who could become a delegate the most relevant, but also each individual union could decide how many votes each person who counted as a delegate could have, up to six votes. So what that means is that if a country had six votes, then that could be a single person that had six votes, or it could be six people that had one vote each. Or it could be one person that had three votes, another that had two votes, and another that had one vote. This was something that the unions themselves decided. And so with specifically the country of six votes, there was a case where you had a country that subdivided it six votes to one person, one country that gave three votes to two people, one country that gave two votes to two people, and two votes to one person. Most of the time, this could be argued argued that this was not a real problem because the people that were that were voting were the leadership of the unions themselves. That way you could have a democratic way of how that was decided within them. However, this caused a little problem for one union in particular. And we will get to UJS and how they organized their share. Before I do that, I would also like to mention that certain unions were not represented. Certain unions were not able to send representatives in person to Spain. So for example, Slovakia was able to vote by giving its votes to the Czech delegation. Russia was able to vote on Zoom, although as with the conference in February, the Zoom did not work perfectly. Sorry, I just gotta say, I just gotta say, Czechoslovakia has been reunited, it sounds like. Um, It so appears. Some unions were actually able to use proxies. So, for example, the Lithuanian Union was able to give its votes to a representative of another country and given them the possibility to vote on their behalf with some instructions on the basis that that person had Lithuanian ancestry. However, there were some countries that did not have any representation at all. Poland does not have a Jewish student or youth union. The role of youth organizations is held in Poland by Hillel. A lot of people from Hillel do a lot of good work in Krakow and Warsaw, but they are not a democratic or student-run organization. They are sort of unofficial partner. And one more country is Norway, which does not have a union so far. However, it did have one person from the Norwegian Jewish community. And given that they were not able to express themselves in the form of voting, I felt that it was only reasonable that I will give them a few minutes of our time. My name is Simon Goldenbeck. I'm 25 years old and I come from Norway. I'm currently a student in robotics at the University of Oslo. It's great to have you here. You are one of the few Norwegian students at SummerU, or the only one, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Are you a representative of a union or have you come here on your own? I came on my own. Unfortunately, there is no Jewish student union in Norway. Well, I came mostly just for fun. I was here five years ago in Bulgaria and had a great time. But also I've become a bit more politically active the last year. I've been talking with some other young adults in Norway about the need for for a Jewish-Norwegian organization. Unfortunately, we don't have a youth organization in Norway for Jews, but hopefully we'll create one. And how are you politically active? I'm on the board of an organization that works with minority languages in Norway. I've also been a bit active in the pro-Europe movement in Norway. This year, I'm a youth delegate in the Council of Europe. Is it comparable to what we saw today at the conference of EUJS? It's similar, but as a youth delegate, you don't have voting rights. So you're mostly there as an observer. So every country has one youth delegate. So I went to Strasbourg in March where I got to observe uh, one uh, session of the Congress. We have the right to speak, so I did share some of my opinions, but we don't have voting rights, so it's not exactly the same. And just like you don't have voting rights here. 
unfortunately. Yes, I guess. <laughs> but um, what is the situation like with the Jewish community in Norway? What are the origins? You have a Polish surname, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so we are quite a small community, around 1,500 Jews. I'm guessing around 1,000 live in Oslo. Uh, our community has around 700 members. It's an Orthodox synagogue. And although we're quite small, we're quite alive and active. The history, in just broad terms, uh, Jews were not allowed entry to Norway in the constitution of 1814, which was one of the most liberal constitutions in Europe at the time. It was first in 1851 that uh, this law was repealed. And when there was sort of a paroxysm of uh, anti-Semitism and pogroms in Eastern Europe, some Jewish refugees came, among others my great-grandparents. And do you cooperate with the Jewish community in Sweden, in Denmark, as part of a greater Scandinavian Jewish community? Definitely. Since we're so few and so uh, vulnerable, uh, there's a lot of sharing of knowledge and also cooperation. For youth movements, we're always having summer camps together. And now we also have a bet in together so like a religious court together and we're also hosting uh, like learning events together and sessions to learn about Judaism. And you see potentially some of you as giving you possibilities for the future there's been discussions quite often about the divide between east and west we heard a lot in the debates today or about movement accelerators do you see these as applicable to Norway how do you position Norway in this west-east divide that's talked about? In this divide we're definitely in the west there are other divides as well when they're talking about small versus big communities and we were obviously one of the smaller ones. I think there's no reason when you have a Swedish and a Finnish and a Danish Jewish Union, there's no reason not to have a Norwegian one. And hopefully we could form kind of a Nordic block that I think would uh, work together. And we have similar values and similar visions for what this union should be like in the future. And so what are your plans for the future? How are you planning to be involved either in the Jewish community in Norway or generally in Norwegian activism and political engagement? Just a bit about my Jewish background. So I worked seven years in the Jewish Museum to show the majority population what the Jewish minority is. This last year I was working a bit as something called the Jewish Pathfinder, which is a project we have in Norway where two young Jews travel all around Norway to speak a bit about how it is to be Jewish in Norway, how it is to be a minority. I've also worked, of course, a lot uh, within the community with youth initiatives. I think for me, the biggest issue is that we have one synagogue and uh, it's orthodox. I think it's good that it's orthodox because that's the only way we can accommodate everyone. That's the only way we could have a framework that everyone feels comfortable in. At the same time, the majority of, of our members are not orthodox. And of course, in, uh, in such a small community, there's a lot of intermarriage. Myself, I'm also from an intermarried couple and halakhically non-Jews are not allowed to be members. So I think that's why we need some sort of structure on the outside of the orthodox community, which hopefully a Norwegian youth organization can be. And I think there's also a lack of programs for youth from like 20 to 30. Uh, after you finish all your schooling and uh, the programs they have up to high school, but after that there's a big gap before you become an adult. And uh, I think a lot of people might uh, lose some of their Jewish connection in this period if there's no organization and events. I mean, I think what he said about the fact that they are a small community and only have an Orthodox synagogue is a very important obstacle for a lot of small communities where you kind of have to cater to the highest common denominator of religiosity. So therefore you end up kind of excluding those who don't really connect to Judaism in that way. So I do think it's important to think about other ways to have Jewish communities to encourage people to connect to their Jewish identities because otherwise it's very difficult and like you 
you said, you can really disconnect from your Jewish identity once you get through the age where you have these programs catered specifically for you. And if you're not really going out of your way to participate and be active in Jewish communities as much as you can, or you don't connect with Orthodox Judaism in the traditional way, then it can be hard to maintain a connection. And I think what he said there is really important. I mean, it's an important question to have in these smaller communities. I don't think it's appropriate to bestow upon Orthodox Jewish organizations the responsibility to engage with people who they don't consider halakhically Jewish as members. However, in such circumstances, or in any circumstances really, there need to be organizations and communal spaces where people who come from intermarried couples who are non-halakhically Jewish, or even have some kind of more distant Jewish ancestry from a single grandparent or great-grandparent or partners who have not converted, should be able to engage. So that's very important. Moving back to the election process, you had a question? Yeah, I was wondering, does this delegate system of voting apply to every vote or were there other general vote-taking procedures? No, the only vote-taking procedures that took place at Samayu were with the delegate voting system. And so to speak about one of the supposedly largest delegations, as I mentioned before, Britain and France both have 18 votes, which gives those votes to UJS, who actually subdivides them between Britain and Ireland, 17 and 1, which is nice officially. It would mean a bit more, and this is not just something that's relating to the decision-making, but also to the whole networking system, if UJS actually showed interest in this event. And I'm confident to speak in this regard, because of all the people involved in the upper structures of the Union of Jewish Students, of the sabbatical officers, of the president, of even the emissaries, of the members of the National Council, not a single one came to some of you. Even though wasn't there a motion to pass at the last UJS conference, there was a motion passed that said they wanted to re-engage with the European Union of Jewish Students. I believe there was a democratic mandate yeah. saying that they had to. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I can speak from personal assurances here as well that there was an importance given for the next year about greater engagement with Europe. And let me be clear that people from the sabbatical team or from the National Council would not undergo financial difficulties with going to some of you. And it's a bit difficult for me to imagine that for an event that is organized several months in advance, a summer week in the south of Spain that of over a dozen people, not a single one would be interested in going. In fact, I do know one person that was interested in going from the National Council who was too late. But it's less about the National Council, I would say more about the sabbatical team and the president. So now you might be wondering, if UJS was not represented by any of the leadership, how did they deal with their delegate situation? Did you get all 18 votes? Just because there weren't anybody from the UJS upper echelon doesn't mean that there weren't any British students. There were in fact quite a few from Huddersfield, from Glasgow, from London, quite a few British Jewish students who study abroad and therefore have more in connection with European Jewish student unions. But there were several delegates that were given. The way that it was decided is that the leadership of UJS in the form of the president, gave the right to vote to a few attendees as delegates. Some are people that were involved before in the European Union of Jewish Students, as board members or not, and some who are just attendees. How was this decided is very difficult for me to say, because there was no public announcement, it was not put down anywhere in terms of asking for it. Of course, the question of who could be a delegate could be limited to only the people that were attending, but it was not a question that came up in advance. It was only for the selected group of people that ended up 
being delegates. There were four of them because you can only have six as the most and one delegate had to specifically go for Ireland, even though the delegate themselves is not Irish anyway more than the other delegates. A point that I want to make here is that I am not bitter in any way about not being selected as the delegate. However, I would like to point out as well that in the recent Aleph publication that I mentioned earlier, I have specifically written an article about the need of further engagement with the European Union of Jewish Students, which was submitted two weeks before Summer U took place, and which was pitched over a month before that. So the British Union leadership knew that a person who wrote such an article was going to Summer U. I am also the secretary of one of the largest JSOCs in the country, a JSOC that has a larger membership than many of the Jewish student unions that were represented at Summer U. Unlike some of the other people that did end up being delegates who are not representatives of their local JSOCs. Yeah, but you have subversive opinions, so they don't want you to be a delegate. I can only speculate. However, I do think that in a situation where the leadership is not present at Summer U, or even in a situation where some of the leadership is present, you're talking about 18 votes, and the way to subdivide 18 votes is less than six, for example. There should be some other mechanism for determining that, whether it is with the National Council or the question of delegating people of the people that are going, the National Council can decide who wants to be a delegate, the candidacies can be limited in that way. There's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of ways to become more inclusive. Also, to allow the delegates themselves to vote however they please and not give them specific instructions and requirements about how they should vote, as was the case. Yep, that sounds like there could be a lot of improvement with their democratic procedure, which is something we noticed about the UJS conference as well, and it doesn't seem like there's any real reckoning with the fact that if a union really wants to declare itself the legitimate voice of a community, it needs to be actually democratic so that it can actually have that right to say that, and it seems like there could definitely be a lot of improvements within that regard. Yeah, so we will leave the thorny subject of UJS behind us and talk a little bit about the General Assembly as it was itself. We have the president we have the treasurer, we have the board. And so you have the General Assembly, which is able to pass motions and amendments to the EUJS constitution. Was this also via delegates? Yes, all the voting took place via delegates. The voting, as with the hustings, took place in a part of the venue that was specifically designed as a conference hall, which was a very good venue, actually, I must say, in terms of the audio and microphone systems that were there. There were even translator booths at the back, which I tried to access. However, they were not connected electronically. I was hoping to maybe get some live reactions. However, despite there being a Zoom, there was no recording of the sessions apart from a protocol, and it was not transmitted live. The steering committee was formed by former people that were involved on the team and the board. One important fact about how the procedures took place was that the procedural motion to move a resolution further up required a two-thirds majority, not a simple majority, as was the case at UJS convention, which means that you're not able to simply change the order of motions that easily. That's a very simple fix that could be attained at next UJS conference. And just preceding the motions themselves,
themselves. You also had speeches from the president giving a report on the last year and what they did. And you also had a report from the executive director giving a report. That last one was particularly interesting because we got to see where are the sources of funding? Where is the money going for? That source of transparency is very much worthwhile. And it's good that we got to find out, for example, what percentage of the funding comes from the European Commission for EUJS, which is about two thirds. And there was also the question about voting for the next budget for the next upcoming year. However, I do feel that it was really presented as a fait accompli, that there wasn't really much discussion on going into the intricacies of the budget that was available. It was simply presented, this is decided by the board, and was rubber stamped. In the future, I certainly think that some kind of decision before the election, you know, a week or two before, could provide for the space of even creating alternatives or amendments to the budget. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, it was very interesting to have. A people's budget for the European Union of Jewish students. That's the next goal. (laughs) Um, When it comes to the motions themselves, the deadline for the submissions of them was last month, and there were amendments that were able to take place until last night, and even some amendments that were possible to do within the General Assembly itself. That means that amendments could not necessarily be used as torpedoing mechanisms. The motions were able to be submitted until last month is a limitation. However, it also theoretically means that there is a longer amount of time to accustom yourself within the motions in general, although it also could be used as an argument for having motions to be submitted to the board throughout the time of its tenancy. One important thing that requires mention is that submissions of motions and amendments took place by country. A national union submitted a motion, not a member of a national union. Now, when it comes to political or controversial motions, this can result in a situation potentially where a national union will not have support for a specific motion, because some people might disagree. And this can also make it difficult for political blocks to organise within UJS. And I think it's quite artificial to pretend that everyone in the national union has to support a certain motion. I would very much like a system, even if we're talking about keeping the same form of delegates, that you could have individual delegates from separate countries working together on a specific motion. And once the motions were discussed themselves, there were way fewer of them. There were, I think, in total around 15 to 20 motions. You had two minutes to speak for the motion. And there was only further discussion if there was an opposing voice. Hmm. All motions passed. Some were contested. The only one that required voting via delegation, meaning the exact number of votes was tallied, was a amendment to a motion about UJS in Israel that specifically condemned the far right in Israel. And that was quite dramatic because the votes were called out by country and how they voted. I tried my best to keep up and so did the steering committee because they were not able to provide me with an accurate tally of the votes. But it was approximately 96 to 72 in favour of the amendment. Other motions that did pass were about Sephardic and Mizrahi visibility in UJS, adding the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to the terrorism list, promoting Jewish cultural heritage, a specific one in anti-Semitism in sports that included the IHR definition, and actually a separate motion that was introduced by UJS to implement the IHI definition. Which is great to see, you know, the only way in which UJS really brings forward the important stuff to the European Jewish diasporic engagement is, we need the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which was already in place, but this further reinforces it. And before I forget, there was one candidate that UJS officially supported in the board elections that actually got elected, lives in Israel. And I'm not using this here as any sort of contest.
condemnation. I am simply using it as a fact that there are several people that are involved in EUJS who are from Britain, but they are not specifically connected with the communities in Britain today. They do not come in the same way that people that go to National Council of UJS come from the communities. That amendment towards condemning the far right in Israel was proposed by Olaf. Olaf also, as a member of the board of EUJS, is able to propose motions on his own, and he proposed the motion against Fortress Europe and for the safe passage of refugees. Olaf is one of the organizers of the Never Again Right Now campaign, which is EUJS's human rights organizing group. Previously, they were engaged in a campaign about the genocide of Uyghurs in China and are now engaged in further refugee work. And I spoke to Olaf in what will be the final interview to which we will listen today. Olaf, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm Olaf. I'm 27. I am based in Scotland. I live in Edinburgh, but I was born in Poland. I moved to the UK when I was a child, lived a bit in London and a bit in Scotland. I'm currently the vice president of EUJS. This is my sixth summer U, and I'm really into politics. I work in politics in Scotland. At EUJS, one of the ways in which you are involved is through NAN. Yes. What is NAN? So NAN stands for Never Again Right Now. Never Again Right Now was founded originally in uh, 2020, just after the pandemic started as a response to the Uyghur genocide in the Xinjiang region, perpetuated by the Chinese state. It was something that we were super concerned about. You had one half million people detained in concentration camps, and yet the media didn't really report on this. We basically started this as an awareness campaign in the context of COVID, because we couldn't do direct action. We were all in different cities all across Europe, from Munich to Berlin to Vienna to Barcelona to London and to Edinburgh. We then did some direct action stuff when COVID has dissipated to firstly create this idea that we as Jewish activists, we're not just advocates on a political level. We're not just talking in closed rooms to decision makers, but we're also taking our future into our hands and we're exercising our power in quite radical direct actions that are performative and creative, but also powerful and really put a certain topic on the agenda. Now, since then, a lot of mainstream Jewish organizations like WJC or AJC, EJC started talking about the Uyghur genocide. We've also put this on the Board of Deputies agenda in the UK. We got coverage in more than 200 media articles. It's something that we made an impact on. But now we have relaunched NARN with a new focus on refugee rights. We have a huge amount of deaths in the Mediterranean right now, and yet Europe is doing nothing about it. We think it's a moral outrage. We think that Frontex is fundamentally broken as a system, and we want to call for a more compassionate migration system with safe and legal routes at its heart. When it comes to the new campaign about refugee rights, how are you going to appeal this to Jewish students? Because as an organization within EUJS, you are primarily focusing around this constituency. Of course. Right? What are your plans now going forward? I believe that you're authoring a motion. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so I've authored a motion on behalf of NAR and supported also by the UK Union of Jewish Students and the German Union of Jewish Students, which is pretty simple. Firstly, it expresses solidarity with those crossing the Mediterranean and expresses our welcome on behalf of young Jews, that we welcome people crossing the Mediterranean and the Balkan routes, seeking safety from persecution and war. But we also want safe and legal passage routes. That's something that the EU is failing to provide. That's something that the UK government is failing to provide. I mean, I live in the UK under the jurisdiction of a government that is literally now telling migrants to off back to France. We have a government that is bragging about sending migrants to Rwanda, even though it's hugely expensive and immoral. We basically want to create a different narrative around migration. And why is it relevant to us as Jews? Well, 
look, I'm an immigrant, first generation immigrant. Most people that you'll meet here at Summer U have migration backgrounds. Pretty much every German person will have a background from post-Soviet countries. Pretty much every French person will have a background from, you know, MENA region. So lots of Sephardi Jews from Morocco, Algeria, Libya, etc. So we obviously have very different stories of migration. A lot of the time that was migration by choice, but a lot of the time it was migration because we were driven out, right? Especially Jews in North Africa in the 60s and before that were driven out. That's why they found refuge in France and Spain and so on. Obviously lots of Jews escaped Eastern Europe to escape pogroms in the 19th century and obviously the horrors of the Holocaust as well. So we want to basically show that we have benefited from migration. We have been allowed to build our lives in the diaspora. We're all proud diaspora Jews, but a lot of us are diasporists. And we want to enable those who are fleeing persecution to make lives for themselves, right? We don't think it's right for them to be held in agony and in limbo and in camps in Hungary or in Serbia or indeed in the UK. We want them to have safe routes so that they don't drown and then they can build their lives in Europe and they can work, they can study, they can thrive. That's what we're calling for. On Instagram, you can find us at never.again.rightnow. We're active on Instagram. We have a social media campaign right now with the slogan, how do you see the sea? Basically a contrast of pictures that show you people just beaching in the Mediterranean and people drowning in the sea. You know, the sea is a sea of contrasts humanitarian horror and of happy holidays we're also on twitter at narn campaign so that's n-a-r-n campaign you can reach out to us there we also have a whatsapp group that's organizing over 50 students from across europe we're just building this new phase of the campaign we had a bit of a dormant phase for the past year but we're restarting again here at summer year and we'd love for you to get involved whether you're a jewish student whether you're not a student whether you're 40 years old whether you're jewish non-jewish this is a campaign open to everybody but very much driven by our jewish values and our histories of migration Amazing. Honestly, I think that's super important because so much of Jewish history, like the history I've been studying, is a history of migration. And in the 19th century, a lot of Jews had this freedom to leave. We were in a place where we were not safe, and my ancestors, many people's ancestors, were able to leave and find refuge either in Western Europe or the majority in the United States. And then in the first couple decades of the 20th century, the right to arrive began to be closed off. You had the 1905 Aliens Act in Britain, which was explicitly to restrict Jewish immigration. And then you had the immigration laws in the early 1920s in the U.S. that basically did the same thing, but of course wasn't so much focused on Jews specifically, but still had a big impact on Jewish immigrants and refugees. And that's just a huge part of Jewish history. Diaspora is something that's in motion, always. There's been different pushes and pulls that have brought people to different places and different times over the last few hundred years, but diaspora is a history of immigration. It's so important for us to really lean into that part of our identity as Jews, as diaspora Jews, as Jewish diasporists, and recognize that it informs us to be fighting for everyone to live in safety wherever they would like to live. And that, of course, flies in the face of everything the far right stands for with our fortress Europe, our strong white states, but that's just not good for anyone. Even if you're a nationalist, it's not good for the longevity of diverse human culture. It simply flattens things and it destroys lives and it just actively hurts so many people that it's so important that we really stand up for the right of refugees, of immigrants. And it's really great to hear that Olaf is taking a really strong and active role within that. So really grateful to hear that. This interview was recorded, it's actually the first interview that I recorded before the motion 
motion passed, I can inform you, as I did before, that the motion did pass. And as Olaf said himself, it was supported by the German Union, JSUD, and the British Union, UJS, so credit where credit is due over there. About NAN itself, I really do think that a lot of what they are doing is right. I went to the seminar in Vienna to discuss, bring it back. This is where I started my journey through EUJS. At some of you, as Olaf did mention, they did quite a bit of organizing. They painted a cardboard box to look like a coffin. And then when they went to Malaga, they brought it there and they showed it to the people around the beach as an example of people having a good time and also people being dead in the same waters of the Mediterranean. This isn't something that I've mentioned in Nan before, but it's definitely something that must be sitting at the backs of minds of at least some people, that if there is a human rights campaign or human rights wing of EUJS for organizers and activists, then at some point, I believe it will be prudent to discuss the question of human rights when it comes to Israel-Palestine. It is a bit of an elephant in the room, I believe, but that's something that has not been discussed yet. However, I would encourage people to become engaged with the campaign, not, may I say, as a form of infiltration, but simply because a lot of the work that is already being done is very good. This brings to the end the discussion on EUJS democratic decision-making, the General Assembly, the elections. I just have a few concluding remarks. First of all, I really enjoyed my time at SummerU. I would like to thank everyone who I met over there. The people that I spoke to were many more than the ones I was able to interview. There would have been many more conversations that would have been able to be had, but had I interviewed every interesting person at SummerU, this episode would be five times the length that it is right now. I would also like to thank Damien, one of the Polish people that was at SummerU. Even though there isn't a Polish union, there were six of us in total. I think that something that needs to be raised in these discussions is the question of conscious and unconscious diasporism. Because when we talk to people who are involved in building communal life, they might not be doing it with the strict view of Jewish life can exist wherever, and because of this we have to be opposed to the idea that we need our own ethno-national state. But nevertheless, I think it's the actions that matter most, and I think that people building community deserve all the support that we can give. People deserve support from people that do have that diasporous mindset, specifically ones from larger communities. I also wouldn't say that it is equivalent to what happened in the interwar period. I'm going to say a lovely German word that I learned recently, which is Gegenwartsarbeit. I hope that I pronounced that correctly, which is basically the kind of work that a lot of Zionist organizations underwent before the Second World War in terms of building a Jewish national identity in the diaspora that did not view emigration as an immediate thing that could be either accomplished or was desirable by people. And so they nurtured the establishment of Jewish schools, both in Yiddish and in Hebrew, as well as the establishment of communal institutions, some of which were more democratically managed than others, but nevertheless, once they were able to represent the community. I don't think that this is something that should be considered temporary per se. I think that the people in these different communities really do view that Jewish life can thrive and flourish, even if some of them do believe, for example, that living in Israel is a higher way of being Jewish than not. Nevertheless, I think that it is important to find common ground with people and demonstrate that we can, when building together, build full Jewish life in the diaspora. And for anybody who may be listening to this and may be skeptical about going to an event that is pro-Israel or Zionist, which in this context can mean really anything if you really want to identify it as such, I would strongly encourage people to go not to evangelize, to organize but not to evangelize but simply have a good time, meet a lot of interesting people, make 
connections and so on. Because ultimately, if we do believe in full, rich Jewish diaspora lives, that is going to have to be based on forms of democratic representation, at the very least until we can't come up with something better. And if we do strongly believe in that, then we have to be representative and raise our voice and use these opportunities. I would also say that in these small communities, if you are a radical voice, this is something that applies not just to small national communities, but even in Jewish student communities. If you are actively engaged and you show excitement for Jewish culture, life and community, and you're an open person, you are not going to be met with as much skepticism as a lot of people that are edgy for the sake of being edgy and therefore are not engaged in Jewish communal politics would like you to believe. So definitely worth doing, definitely worth connecting with like-minded people from other countries. And some of you is just one of many ways in which that can be accomplished. Ben, any final thoughts? Just that I think bodies like the European Union of Jewish Students and its affiliates actually do play a really important role in the reproduction of Jewish life, because for a lot of the late 19th century, what Jewish socialist left-wing Jews realized and came up against was the reality that there really weren't secular alternatives to synagogues and Jewish day schools to be able to build a secular Jewish culture. But while you do have like Simone mentioned in Norway, you have communities that are basically monopolized by the religious orthodoxy. But having these Jewish student unions, which are primarily social and maybe cultural institutions, you can really actually provide the structure that enables the production of an alternative Jewish identity that is much more rooted in social and cultural values rather than strictly religious values. And I think there's a long history of this not being there for a lot of people and making it difficult. But you do have things like this today. We can be involved in them. We can be involved with them at the local level, the national level, the international level. And it actually provides something that a lot of our ancestors didn't have. So I think we really should be aware of the privilege that we have to be living in this certain moment. Of course, it's a difficult time, but we do live in a moment where we have some very interesting and developed communal bodies. And I think as left-wing Jews, as diasporists, it's our opportunity and it's our duty to be engaged in them because otherwise our points our perspective is not going to be present and like Zach is saying like you do have actual obstacles to making these truly democratic bodies nevertheless it's our opportunity and our responsibility to try and to try to actually get our point across and to be able to listen and talk and engage in an important discourse and important dialogue because you don't win arguments just by yelling and fighting because that simply leads to conflict that leads to war internally within our communities and that's something that we need to recognize maybe it's inevitable but also I don't think it is especially at the local level it's something that having the conversations really embracing what it means to be a Jew and diaspora historically and in the present is really important and bodies like the European Union of Jewish Students plays an important if somewhat difficult to navigate role within Jewish communal politics and life. We will leave you at this. We can have the best ideas for what Jewish communal life and diaspora, Jewish culture, safety, life, politics can be. But if nobody else hears about it, if we keep to our echo chambers, that can be not as convincing as it otherwise would be. Because people are, I think certainly at this stage, a lot of people are looking for something new, for a new perspective. We are recording this on the 12th of September. The high 
High Court in Israel is currently undergoing a very crucial decision-making process about the reasonableness clause. And so we are really, I think, in a pivotal moment with a lot of Jewish communal discourse to what we associate with as the mainstream common opinions. And if we want to offer a new way, a new path, then this is the time. And there are places in which we have to be to be able to offer, you know, a positive, fresh view. And so I think for us in these podcasts that we are creating, of course, it's important to be speaking to organizers, to people that already agree with us and have these conversations. But I think it's also important to speak to people who might not attach the labels that we have, might have disagreements with us. Obviously, we're not going to be inviting, you know, any racists to speak about their racial views. But for people that are building communities, for people that are doing something original, for people that are contributing to Jewish diaspora culture, this is a space that we want to engage with them. This is a place where people from small communities, whether it is in Uganda or Macedonia or that one guy in Greenland, the bulwark of the Jewish community of the Arctic Circle. This is, I think, a place where we don't want people to feel shy to be able to come to and express themselves without having to be already agreeing with us on everything. And as Ross said in our last episode, like if you come up to a random Jew in the streets and you say, oh, do you want to build Jewish life where we are and be engaged in what that means to us in the places we live? Like a lot of people agree with that. And I think it's really our responsibility to discuss this with people not stay in our echo chambers and not actively counterpose ourselves to these Jewish institutions and act like they're irredeemably evil because they're not. These are made up of real people who simply want to engage with their Jewish identities at a local, national, and international level. And this is something that is so important to Jewish life. And it's our job to be involved with them and engaged with them. Because otherwise, we are basically not part of the community. Yeah. Or at least we are perceived as not being within the community. Just really grateful you got to go on this very interesting retreat, this event. I'm really grateful you got to go to the European Union of Jewish Students Summer U. I think it's a really interesting event that can really bring together a lot of different communities. And it's exciting that you got to engage with so many people and make those connections. And I I'm really curious to see what the future of European Jewish life looks like. It's up to us to call ourselves to task, to sing what's good and true, to bring about redemption. It's what we were freed to do. For what's the point of being here if we're not moved to change our ways? It's time to live our praise. We are carrying the stories of the ones who came before. What stories will be told of us when we are here no more? We commit ourselves to action. It brings meaning to our days. It's time to live our praise It's up to us to own the vision We are an answer to a call It's up to us to live the words we speak For the benefit of all It's up to us to bow down deeply there's a broken world to raise. Alain Olishabeya, it's 
It's time to 